Welcome to the Keeney Interviews. Through this series, you will meet leading practitioners from the water sector and hear their stories. Together, we will address water challenges and discuss how best to face them. Keeney is the Malaysian word for current, and this initiative promotes the flow of ideas within the water sector. Hello and welcome to today's Kinney interview with Nathan Taylor. Nathan is an economist who has over the past couple of years in his PhD applied his economic thinking towards water and in particular he's looking at risk and how cities can manage risk and understand risk and prepare for their future in terms of water reliability. His work mostly is focused on uh, Australia and in particular Victoria, but it has application throughout the Indo-Pacific region. And it's, it's a really interesting way to think about water supply and addressing risk, both at the political and at the community levels, um, for really just making sure nobody's freaking out that there's no more water left. <laughs> anyway, I hope that you enjoy this interview with Nathan Taylor. I'm Karen Delfo. And here you have it. So Nathan, thanks very much for joining me today for your Kinney interview. Today we're going to be talking about risk and hydrological risk. And I'm hoping we could get started with you just introducing yourself a bit, talking about your background and talking about the research you've been doing. Well, uh, good morning, Karen. Thank you very much for the opportunity to talk about uh, this topic. Um, I'm a research fellow at the University of Melbourne examining the issues around uh, how we quantify the economic value of water and storage, look at, using risk uh, and society's willingness to tolerate risk and how what it costs to mitigate that risk as a basis for defining that opportunity of a value of water and storage. Um, I'm a professional economist having worked in various roles including the Reserve Bank of Australia Chief Economist at uh, the Committee for Economic Development of Australia, CETA, and uh, are now undertaking uh, the Committee for Economic Development of Australia, CETA, and uh, are now undertaking research in this area because I think it's important not just for Australia but for uh, countries around the world as we grapple with maintaining uh, urban water supplies in an uncertain future. My background's always been looking at uh, applying economic principles to policy decisions of government and uh, a major decision that was taken uh, unanimously by a range of governments in Australia was to supplement the water supplies when facing uh, potential risk of running out. Now this was done unanimously uh, from different events of different political spectrums around Australia uh, to supplement their water supplies by building desalination plants. The desalination plants were extreme costs and we're representing some of the largest desal plants uh, constructed in the world. Now, I was interested in what the economics involved in that decision uh, were about and how economic policy can help us make better decisions in the future. I'm also thinking that when you deal with any sort of you know policy decision-making, any sort of understanding your water portfolio, you really need to have as a basis uh, data as a starting point and really solid data. And um, I'm hoping you can share your perspective in sort of navigating the amount of data that's available in terms of water resources in Australia uh, and how that kind of bridges to the economic approaches that you've been working through. 
Certainly. Um, one of the issues around data, when we talk around water security, the question, one of the issues around data, when we talk around water security, the question is, what do we mean by that? We mean uh, an ability to meet a certain level of demand over time, right? So to do that, we need to understand what the weather patterns are going to be, what the inflow patterns are for our streams and um, uh, rivers are going to be. What is the resource that we actually have? So um, we're talking about how to put infrastructure, like the economic question is, how do you minimize the infrastructure you build in order to uh, meet a given level of water security? And so the question is, how do you define that security? Well, uh, hydrologists have approached this question by looking at what they call the storage yield reliability relationship, SYPR. Uh, so the SYR relationship looks at how, for a given uh, level of investment in a dam, for instance, what is the amount of Now, in Australia, a typical approach to this is to um, look at the historical inflows and make an assessment or a decision around what the likely future inflows are going to be and try and use that information to extrapolate and develop synthetic um, uh, hydro realizations that can be extended over a long period of time. So we might take the historical record of uh, about 114 years and then develop a synthetic record that replicates that historical inflow pattern statistically, so it's, they've got the same statistical behavior, but might extend for a thousand years or uh, even 10,000 years, like the, the limit, it's endless. And then what we ask is how, given a, a demand on this, uh, this inflow uh, and given a reservoir, how, how reliable is that? So how many years out of that thousand are we going to be able to meet uh, a demand on the water supply system? I'm in particular thinking about the extreme variation in water inflow that Australia in particular has to deal with, um, particularly with climate change and more severe El Nino, La Nina events and events. And uh, that must be quite difficult to kind of manage, I would figure, in terms of really understanding Absolute. the resource. Absolutely, Karen. It's really challenging. Uh, Australia's uh, national anthem says it's a land of floods, of droughts and flooding rains. In fact, uh, the the millennial drought, which inspired my research, was broken in Queensland, one of the states that was suffering from a crippling drought, by a flood that decimated the city, resulting in uh, footpaths being washed away and billions of dollars of damage. So uh, managing those two extremes is a challenge. Yep. So, um, so you have a, a, a data set, you have projections that you use, you look at the storage yield reliability ratio, no ratio relationship. And then, mm -hmm. and then from yes. there, you're really working with ability. Mm -hmm. And then from yes. there, you're really working with risk and understanding what people are willing to accept in terms of that reliability or the storage yield reliability relationship. Is that correct? That is right, yes. And so in the past, we've uh, there's been this relationship that's been quantified by hydrologists, like what is the risk in the water supply system? And they've established restrictions regimes to try and maintain water security over time for a given level of risk. 
Now, uh, on the other hand, we can actually quantify what that cost is going to be. So rather than putting this risk in terms of future demand, we can actually look at it and go, you know what, uh, we can, we have the technology, we can build it. Uh, and what I'm talking about here is things like recycling or desalination plants or other forms of alternative water supply that are accessible in those extreme uh, scenarios like the millennial drought for, threw up. So we can take that risk and actually turn it into an uh, quantify um, to an uh, quantify uh, for an economic context. Can you provide the example of how Melbourne has used this approach? Because I think that helps to illustrate it. Well, thank you. Uh, yes, I'm look, working with the Department of Land, Water and Planning and Melbourne Water and the uh, Melbourne Water re uh, retailers uh, to try and quantify the economic value of water reliability in Melbourne. And we do that by taking the hydrological expectations um, over the longer term and what we believe demand is going to be on, on the water resource. So uh, given our population projections, we know that the population of Melbourne is going to double by um, 2060 or thereabouts. And so we know that these challenges we have now are going to get much, much worse. What we do is we say, okay, if the dams are full, it's going to cost the city of Melbourne X to uh, meet, that, like to, to build extra desalination plants, to build extra water resources by 2060. But if the dams are getting close to empty, it might cost two times X to get there, to do the same thing over that time frame, to guarantee that same level of reliability. So as a consequence, by doing this, not just at like at completely full and completely empty, but at all up and down the um, the uh, uh, storages of Melbourne, we can actually say what the value of water is t worth today in Melbourne. The reason that it would cost twice as much is just because when you reach a lower level of water, the water is going to be a lot more expensive, or is it is it really wrapped into the whole risk issue where uh, people are less comfortable with the risk and therefore there's a lot more in a sense, to manage in terms of getting that water level up. Yes, uh, that second point is exactly right, Karen. Uh, it costs twice as much because you have to do things like put uh, It costs twice as much because you have to do things like when the water store, initial water storages are very low. So if the dam's almost empty, you have to be doing things like putting on really extreme restrictions, building uh, an extra expansion of a desalination plant and taking these actions today which, you know, if the dams are full, you won't do until 2060. The thing is, uh, some of these uh, expansions may never be used. So that's the case in Melbourne. If um, if the historical inflows are repeated in the future, and if, like, so if the inflows we had since uh, Melbourne's being uh, founded continue for the next uh, 100 years, Melbourne won't actually need any augmentations of the water supply system. The billions of dollars spent during the millennial drought will have been wasted. It's interesting because it's, you know, it really doesn't depend on whether or not there is enough water or will be enough water to support the population that requires it. It's really about, you can, it's really about risk and what risk people are willing to accept, um, whether it's decision makers yes. or the community more broadly. And I'm hoping you could explain a little bit more about risk and how that factors into your research and how you calculate risk because risk is something that you can't really 
you can't really just put your thumb on it and say, well, this is what the risk is. It's, it's really something that you're constantly managing. It's, it's very much a moving target. I'm hoping you can speak a little bit more about risk and how that factors in. Certainly. Uh, absolutely. So when talking about water security, you really have to think about what is the risk involved? What is the security you're trying to give to your community? And what is the risk uh, involved in that security? Because at the end of the day, you can't eliminate hydrological risk. It's always going to be there. But for the, mo for the average person who's wandering the streets of a city, they don't care if it's unlikely or very likely to rain um, uh, enough to fill up the water reserves. They just want to know if they should have an umbrella or not. So they're not thinking about the dams and level of water and storage when they go about their daily business. And nor should they. So for them, that, that isn't the risk. They are concerned about how much their water bill costs, um, and they expect to have water there when they when uh, they turn the tap on. Wait a minute. Are you telling uh, me that so not everybody in Melbourne has that like special app on their phone where they can check all the <laughs> reservoir levels instantaneously? I mean, come on. I do that from France. You know why? Why is a special app on their phone where they can check all the <laughs> reservoir levels instantaneously? I mean, come on. I do that from France. You know why? Why isn't everyone in Melbourne? Well, not doing these that? days. <laughs> During the millennial drought, that, but that was part of the the cost of uh, maintaining our water storages because it was encouraging everyone to actually have, care about this and monitor their own behavior because of it. Right, so that people would, in a sense, self-regulate and restrict their own water use if they would understand the resource a little bit better. Did that happen? That was the intent, yes. Uh, certainly. Um, we had huge, we've had huge reductions in water demand. In fact, Melbourne would have run out of water had it not introduced, uh, had consumption main, uh, continued at the same level it was in the 80s and the 90s. So prior to the millennial drought, had the water consumption stayed at that level, the city would have run out of water during the millennial drought. I'm, um, I'm realizing that in your research, you've probably learned quite a bit in terms of how to navigate and join together the two disciplines of hydrology and economics. And I'm wondering if there's anything that you could share um, to help support others who are looking to maybe apply an economic <laughs> lens to hydrology or vice versa, if that's even possible. Well, certainly, Karen. Um, uh, from my perspective as a professional economist coming into this uh, policy area, I was really quite surprised at uh, two things. Two things struck me. One is uh, economics has some very good suggestions, but unfortunately, it has in the past tended to simplify ways. Two things struck me. One is uh, economics has some very good suggestions, but unfortunately, it has in the past tended to simplify the hydrological risk in a way that decision makers haven't been able to, it doesn't represent the decision decision makers are facing. So because they haven't quantified and conceptualized that risk, they haven't translated their good advice to practical policy outcomes for urban water supplies. This is different from rural water supplies in Australia. Uh, on the other hand, on the, on the other side, I've looked at hydrology and, and seen the incredible insights they have into the behavior of um, reservoirs and water supply systems as a consequence of hydrological variation. But the way they treat demand has also been simplified um, and it's perceived as almost something external to the system. So as an economist, I would say, well, actually, demand is incredibly responsive, as Melbourne's history has to the price signal being provided by 
um, of the cost of it. So if you give people a choice around the level of risk they're willing to face and the costs associated with it, then something can be done with it. And so um, my advice to anyone looking at this area, looking to explore uh, economics, uh, the interaction of economics and hydrology, would be to treat with respect the way uh, economists view demand and the way hydrologists view um, risk or quantify risk. Because unless you can actually manage across those two uh, uh, concepts, you won't be able to have any advice um, uh, re resulting from your work. So it sounds like this has been a constant educational process uh, between those who work in the economics realm and those who work in the hydrology space. And I'm wondering how you've been able to use your research in order to bring that to the attention of decision makers so that they can understand them, that to the attention of decision makers so that they can understand a little bit more maybe about both of these two areas and, and, and figure out how to make good decisions based on the research and the knowledge that you're providing them. Has that been a part of what you've been doing or maybe that's the next step for you? It will be uh, a large part of it will be the next step, but I've been very fortunate to work with someone, uh, Professor John Langford, who spent a long time uh, operating Melbourne's water supply system and working uh, across the water supply systems of Australia. He's incredibly knowledgeable and he's a supervisor of my work. And uh, he's provided the capacity to translate the economic concepts into the hydrological decision-making that people face. And so the next stage, as you said, is to take that to a broader audience of decision-makers. And so I've been fortunate to be able to get a, a number of their, uh, to be able to communicate these concepts to a number of them, but now it's a, a challenge to take it to a broader uh, group of people. And I know that this has maybe... And I know that this has may is maybe very much relevant to what's happening in Melbourne, but I'm I'm hoping you can also speak a little bit more about how this can be applied, generally more broadly in the Indo-Pacific context, and and even provide some of the examples of where this approach has been put into place globally. Well, it's um it's the concept of looking at what it costs to maintain reliability is relevant to anywhere that has either water in storages or relies on reserves of water or relies on variable inflows of water. So anywhere that has uh, major variations in the inflows of a river or, uh, or relies on water in storage from gravity failed uh, reservoirs, this concept, this approach of looking at what does it cost to, to maintain reliability is relevant to them. So it's a variation of what's done uh, quite often by uh, quantifying the reliability of a water supply system. But the approach of adopted is relative to reliability of a water supply system. But the approach of adopted is relatively new, which is why it's a, it's a research at the moment. And so it hasn't been uh, directly applied to assess the economic value of water and storage elsewhere, to my knowledge. Um, I know that there have been other situations where uh, cities have undertaken extreme uh, actions in the, in the face of um, running out of um, essential for life water. For example, in Barcelona, um, when faced with a very extreme drought, I think it was in 2008, uh, I'll check that for you, um, they hired a super tanker full of water to try and um, you know, supplement the city's water supplies. And uh, so that would be an extreme case of where, you know, they didn't have enough time to build a desalination plant. So they went all the way to uh, hiring a super tanker full of water. 
Yeah, to keep them uh, alive. Uh, well, it's interesting, though, because in Barcelona, they actually tried to manage the risk, but uh, because they didn't quantify the costs of that risk, uh, so they tried to get it into basin transfer, like to buy water from a rural area, but were pushed back because of the politics of the situation. And they didn't actually put the, the quantified the cost of, you know, if they didn't if they didn't manage this, they're going to have to get, if they didn't manage to, to buy water from uh, uh, from farmers, they're going to have to go and buy a, a super tanker of water. And as a consequence, um, they weren't able to, the, politically, it wasn't palatable for them to buy water from farmers. And so the, the risk, the, the failure, I think, in Barcelona was to, to not put the cost of uh, those extreme measures and quantify them. I'm wondering if we can flip this around because it seems like we're looking at, um, in particular, the urban context and how the urban context um, needs to consider the cost to maintain its water reliability. But I'm, I'm thinking about, in particular, the Indo-Pacific and the and the rural context, the farming communities, irrigation, agriculture. Um, have you ever seen this approach being used in the inverse thinking, well, hang on a second. If we don't get the water out to the agricultural sector, then we're not going to be able to have the food production that we need. And the implications of that also have tremendous risk and tremendous cost. If you're thinking about food being imported, um, from far Mm. away, for example, I'm just wondering if we could flip it around and if that would make sense as well. Um, It it does make perfect sense. Uh, although a lot of the ways I look at, you know, ensuring, water is there is too expensive for agricultural farming. In fact, in Australia, the only reason this approach is viable or is relevant to a city is because the risks of failure are socialized in Australia. So, you know, the government will step in if there's no water supplies. However, in the in the rural context, uh, this approach isn't relevant because far, the risk of failure has been privatized in Australia. However, in the, in the rural context, uh, this approach isn't relevant because the risk of failure has been privatized in Australia. So it's up to the individual farmers to ensure their own level of reliability that they want for their water supplies. And so we have water trading markets in Australia where the price of water goes up and down based on its uh, its availability. So farmers can purchase as much or as little of these entitlements as they want, reflective of their uh, desire for reliability. So, um, so unless you have some sort of a social program that's guaranteeing some sort of baseline reliability for agricultural systems in a rural context, um, and or or for example markets in place, then it's not it's not something that yeah. has been applied in the on the flip side. Even though the principles are the they're applicable pretty much the across the board. Are- Yes, uh, the principles are there and they would be applicable, but they'd be applicable to things like local water trading. Yes, uh, the principles are there and they would be applicable, but they'd be applicable to things like looking at where do you source water for an agricultural sector, agricultural area. So if we take it for Australia, for example, we would see that uh, because there's water trading, we see something very clear and there's like there's a, a very different desire for water reliability for different consumers of water in our agricultural sector. At the least, uh, at the lowest level, are the rice growers. So they actually don't buy reliable water. They just grow rice when water is very cheap and plentiful. Next, we have the dairy farmers who buy water to grow their own crops to feed their cattle. But in times of shortages, they sell that water and are buying hay from elsewhere. Uh, so that's how they maintain their, their, their farmers. But in the other extreme, like those who very much value water reliability are the horticulturalists 
who have uh, trees that have been growing for 20 or 30 years even to, before they can start uh, being productive. And they value water reliability very highly because if those trees die, it takes a very long time to replace them. And as a consequence, you see that the rice growers initially selling to the dairy farmers who then sell to the horticulturalists uh, what little of water is remaining. So no, uh, um, so this concept isn't necessarily directly applicable, but it is valuable even for places without, um, uh, without you know, functioning markets and water. You can ask the question, what is the value of maintaining reliability to an individual or a community uh, and the people within that community? So you can start to allocate the water to its to those who value it the most. And, uh, you know, in Australia, because there is a market, those who value it the most pay the most for it. And if somebody would like to use some of the tools that you're generating to actually quantify that value, is that going to be something that's uh, other people, both in Australia and internationally, to be able to use? Absolutely. I'm anticipating publishing in this area very shortly. Um, and uh, there are a number of very interesting questions that come out of it as well. Particularly for like, if you look at the urban context, one of the questions is, you know, for almost 100 years, economists have been looking at the demand uh, for water in an urban context and trying to quantify that. What they haven't done is looked at that essential for life component of water and tried to quantify it. What is it worth for people in the city of Melbourne to have water there when there's nothing available? Right? Partly it's because they always assumed it was going to be available. But the reality is the trade-off in water demand is uh, from tomorrow to today. Uh, and it's not uh, that trade-off is informed by the risks of not meeting an essential for life quantity of water in the future. Right. I'm thinking about the you know WHO standards for you know, standards for how much people really do need to survive in terms of you know cooking and drinking and basic hygiene and mm -hmm. and yeah, to to break it down to that and say, okay, so if we have this population and these are the absolute, bare, I mean, it's going to be like 10 liters a day or something. I mean, it's pretty yeah, small. Yeah, it's 10 or 20. It's not very much. But it's interesting. There has been some work done looking at what is, if you will, the essential for life component that an urban center needs in industrial country. Uh, excluding agriculture, it says it's around 135 liters per person in a developed country. So what that means in other contexts, I'm not sure. Uh, but that's what the essential, what I would say, the essential for life component of, of water is. And Melbourne got down to that. Melbourne's a very dry place compared to many other. Yeah, I think Melbourne went below that even, didn't they? In some instances. Yeah, 155, I think it was a target. Oh. Yeah, per person per day. Oh, per household, I think. Actually, sorry. So that was below that. You're right. Mm -hmm. And um, I'm just, I'm also thinking when you calculate water for, for the urban context, you're also dealing with potentially the industrial applications of that water and probably, exactly yeah, the threshold is going to be spread out across all these different uses so that you come to an yep, actual yep, yep. quantifiable amount per person per day that incorporates everything else as well. So it's not just what yep. that individual is using because you think about 135 liters or so that you come to an yep, actual yep, yep. quantifiable amount per person per day that incorporates everything else as well so it's not just what yep. that individual is using because you think about 135 liters and it's quite a lot but if you have a lot of other you're going to need water to keep a lot of the systems that are running around in the urban context That's running right. as well that'll be interesting mm -hmm. to see how do you actually quantify that um, and put it mm -hmm. put a dollar value on it or economic value on that 
Yes, it's uh, it's been an interesting challenge, one that I'm um, I've been very grateful to have some fantastic professional support for, from uh, very learned individuals, and I'm looking forward to um, publishing and talking with other people who are interested in this issue because I think there's some really interesting outcomes that are applicable and for a wide range of people. So in addition to this um, additional research that you've identified, are there other research questions coming out of your work? And in particular, I'm wondering if to this um, additional research that you've identified, are there other research questions coming out of your work? And in particular, I'm wondering if somebody listens to this interview and they're like, wow, this is great. I want to get involved in, in this, this discipline and, and help support building these bridges between uh, economics and hydrology and um, and really just supporting what you're trying to do. Is there any sort of advice or direction or additional research questions above and beyond what you've already described that you would be able to share with others looking to do a little bit more with this? I think the, uh, if you say the million dollar question, that I, if someone can find the solution to this, would be uh, what are the implications of climate change? And what are the consequences for risk? Because at the moment we have no idea. And so that's the, uh, that's, I think, one of the big unknowns. We can talk about the, the cost of maintaining reliability, but uh, that's based on current hydrological expectations. So a big issue is what is the thing the, maintaining reliability, but uh, that's based on current hydrological expectations. So a big issue is what is the, the, the nature of the hydrological distribution in the future. So that's another area. So those are the two big questions that fall out of the work that I've been looking at, I think. One is, what is the value to people of maintaining the essential for life component of water supplies? And the other would be, how do you actually even quantify or grapple with the uh, changes wrought by climate change? So I, I'm guessing that that question that you're bringing up, or the, the potential research area, really looks at addressing some of the extreme climatic impacts of climate change as well. Kind of how does that address or how does that fold into um, the reliability and how do you manage the risk for that? And yeah, it's a big question, actually. And yeah, it's a big question, actually. Keeney is an initiative of the Australian Water Partnership and the International Water Centre Alumni Network. Keeney connects water managers and shares knowledge throughout the Asia-Pacific. Visit our website at keeney.org.au for more information and for videos, articles, news and more.